Hello and welcome to Spoil Your Rain with me, Ben Simmons. And me, Jack Kavanagh. We've um, been off the air for a while, and so this is a sort of a recap episode of what's been happening over the last month and a half or so. And I thought we would start with uh, the big ticket item, which was the budget. We've had a budget now. Um, I think one of the things that first comes to mind is the budget was, despite all the talk in the lead up about it being a certain giveaway budget to secure Fine Gael in the forthcoming election. Yeah, like the year. six euro to the, the three extra three euro a week to the pensioners, basically. Yeah. yeah, that really it hasn't been a giveaway budget in that sort of sense at all. No, I mean I think I think a lot of people's perspectives on the budget a month after has been it was it was a wasted opportunity uh, in that we have funding needs we need to spend money on infrastructure. We need to fix our healthcare system. We need to fix our education system. And all we did was we kind of tinkered around the edges and we also didn't fix the deficit. If you have an expansionary budget for the first time in five, six years, you would think that either either you're going to spend the money on infrastructure or you're going to spend the money and fix the deficit. And they did neither. So they kind of split the difference. And so now we have a, a rake of tax cuts coming in, which aren't actually going to do anything to stimulate the economy. Because there's an, this is the other part. Like, there is an argument to be said that certain tax cuts will stimulate the economy. Like, if taxes are too high, then people won't spend money, then people won't hire workers. You know, it, it, it is a cycle, right? If you overtax, then people won't spend money. But we overtax on consumption, not on income. We, like, you know, 23% of all of our wages go on household goods. You know, even though bread and certain items are supposed to be VAT neutral, they never are. Like, bagels are no longer bread. Bagels are now set by revenue. You've got to pay 23% on that. You know, so if we cut VAT, we would definitely stimulate the economy. If you cut the VAT rate from 23 to 10%, that would be an enormous fiscal stimulus for the economy, for people spending money. So if they wanted to do that, if they wanted to be a kind of center-right economic agenda, then that seems to be the most logical one. I think the other misleading thing, or rather as you said, was inopportune, like they didn't take advantage of the opportunity. Uh, giving away an actual tax cut in terms of income is not a very bright idea. No. At least not at the moment. Because when you look at the tax levels... Which that is were, a one-time benefit. Yeah. But, okay, obviously people are like, well, during the recession, there was a disproportionate burden put on the taxpayer. Mm-hmm. And I totally understand that as a natural grievance to have. Yet, at the same time, the tax levels that were in existence prior to the recession were ridiculously low. Yeah, we had a, we had a lower tax base than pretty much all of our European colleagues. So that when we had to contract the economy, and then when the government decided in their wisdom to nationalize all the banks, we, did actually, we didn't have enough fiscal reserves built upon our tax base to cover the difference. So we ended up with a 10 to 12 percent deficit between income and expenditure. And sort of the dependency on a high VAT rate has the problem that the government revenue is also dependent on consumer spending. So even if people are making more money, likeliness is that they're still going to want to save more. And obviously they've... um, the benefits of saving are actually quite low. Like, the, look at the interest rate, the interest rates for savings accounts are... Yeah, dirt. Dirt yeah. tax is not... Yeah, that's high. I mean, it's a 33% tax on saving at this point. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't know if you saw, there was a study, I think it was in the journal, and I think it was picked up by maybe Broadsheet or one of those sort of online publications. Someone did an analysis of the tobacco taxes. And the analysis of the tobacco taxes are as follows. In the last four years, Michael Noonan has used the levy on what used to be called the old reliables. So a levy on petrol, alcohol, and tobacco. 
the three kind of things you can just hit them up by a euro or a couple of pence. And people are expecting that rise every year anyway, regardless of how the economy is doing. Exactly. And here's the problem. The expend so there's there's revenue targets. A budget is a, a statement of what your revenue targets are going to be. So the, so the government, when they're saying, we're expecting this much revenue, it's a leap of faith. So you're making a hope that in a year it will be what you say it is. And sometimes it's higher, but more often it's lower. And in the case of Michael Noonan on, on the old reliables, he's been way below his targets. So he's undershot the targets he set for himself. So as he's increased taxes on these three items, the old reliables, he has actually had to spend more money on enforcement. Yeah. So it's actually reached a point now where illegal petrol, illegal alcohol, and illegal tobacco are at an all-time high. The tax rate, tax in, intake is at an all-time low, and enforcement is rising. So it's been an actual failed exercise. We've reached a point now where we can't tax these items anymore because people can now buy them illegally, yeah. and it's pretty widespread. Yeah, I, I think there's also, when you look at obviously the, the corporate tax being slightly lower than, say, what our... European counterparts would like it to be, yeah. Um, which is one of the things that obviously is arguably makes the Irish economy competitive for foreign direct investment. At the same time, it's not if you're going to have a lower tax for corporations, a lower set of consumer sort of income taxes, mm -hmm. and then really high consumer Consum taxes. Consumption it doesn't, taxes, yeah, it makes no sense because people the the sort of the relief that people might feel on their wages is not even going to, I think, balance with the inflation of costs of goods and the extra taxes which are put on those goods when we've seen rent increases in places like especially Dublin. That is also in businesses as well who have to increase the prices of their goods in order to maintain property in, like in the inner city. Yeah, and I think that's, that, that raises a really interesting point where the one aspect that was missing from the budget was the issue of rent. And so for the last six months, if anyone who's been reading the papers has seen that the Minister for the Environment, Alex Kelly, the Deputy Leader of the Labour Party, and the Minister for Finance, Michael Noonan, have been having a kind of ongoing um, battle in the newspapers about what to do about rising rents. And the Fine Gael position, from what I understand, is, well, rents are high, but we want people to buy houses. And the Labour position is, we have a reality of, you know, 400,000 to 600,000 people rent in this country and they're not in a position to buy houses and we're going to have to do something about that. What that something is, we don't know. So they had this idea of chain CPI, which is basically you link rents to the consumer price index. Now, the reason that that makes no sense in this country is because the outsized role played by foreign uh, multinational companies on our consumer price index. Yeah. So we, we have an artificially high CPI due to the influence of foreign direct investment on our wider economy. So you can't link it that way because, as Michael Noonan made this point, and he's right, he said, if you had done that in the boom, the rents would have been 20% higher than they were then. Yeah. So we've now actually reached a higher level of rent than in 2007. And I think in both the budget and the infrastructure well, plan punted, yeah. that was released... It doesn't seem to be confronting what Today's one issue. of the problems, which I believe is that there's whether it's because it's really the only place in the country with a huge amount of employment um, needed, but at the same time where it's expected to be made available is Dublin. And so if people are constantly being required to move into Dublin, 
the rents are definitely going to increase. Mm-hmm. Like even, like it has affected some of the more the secondary cities. Yeah, well, Cork has a, has a housing crisis, and so yeah. does Galway too. Which is again magnified, um, but don't you annually by the students as well. The student population is almost another factor, and I know that UCD are trying to. I think by twenty twenty two, they said they want to have like sixty five percent of all their students. They want them to have them in like a separate campus accommodation sort of like the emergence of like a US style dorm system Mm -hmm. now I have a problem with that in that I think dorms actually mollycoddle kids and you end up in a situation where you don't know how to you know cook your own meals and um, pay bills and be a responsible adult and I think that delays people's understandings of that until they're in their mid to late 20s which can be a kind of a a shock to them you know well it's also to do with Sort of, I think it has an influence on whether it's good or bad for the students. We can save kind of that discussion for a different day. But at the same time, it's like if if the government is going to have to pour more money into the universities in order for them to build infrastructure for their students while they're cutting staff, while they're yeah, while they're cutting staff, yeah, and obviously there are less permanent positions available, or even if there are more positions, it's still disproportionately lower to the rising student population. But Absolutely. Universities are expected to bring in more and more and more students all the time. And their money is a, tied to it now. Yeah, the money is tied to it, yeah. And I think I think the thing is, so okay, So let's say they do it. Let's say UCD and Trinity manage to take 65% of their students out of the rental market. Mm-hmm. A rental market is still not sustainable how it is. Um, and there's been this sort of phrase used a lot by the government, which is there is an inadequate supply of housing. As in they're saying, we need to build more houses. If you walk around Dublin City, you will see empty lots and empty units everywhere. And a lot of those were narrow properties. And then they were bought by what's called vulture funds. So these are big private equity funds based usually in the Wall Street kind of U.S. um, stock market. And what they do is they buy up these things and they hold on to them until the, the price shoots up and they sell them for a massive profit, and they get out. So they're not long-term investors, they're short-term. They're trying to make a, a quick buck. Yeah. Because they've bought so much property, there's a lot of property that's off the market, but is sitting empty. Yeah. There are entire apartment blocks in Sandyford that are empty. Well, you had the same kind of story with the ghost estates, where that yeah. why weren't some of these ghost estates being used for... Uh, social cons- housing. Yeah, social housing. And or even now, like they, they've talked about using some of them for homeless people and then some of them for refugees. When you're looking at some of these ghost states are just not fit for human consumption because they like either the roof hasn't been finished or mm-hmm. you know they don't have adequate water supplies or whatever, or else they're built you know fifty miles from the nearest town and there's no primary road to get there and there's like a, a series of problems with those estates that were built in the middle of nowhere. But the measures that were announced quite a bit after the budget are what they've now called rent certainty. And basically, it is a freeze. It's a rent freeze. So, so I am now two months into my lease. Mm-hmm. And so, come next year, if I stay in my same property, uh, I don't get a rent increase. And neither do you. No. Or anyone who is in a new lease, or who's in a lease right now, you, we get to keep our same property at the same price for the next two years. And the way to pay for it, what the government did was they raised the amount of rent relief that they could get on the tax base. This is they being landlords. And they have a couple other measures there about sort of cutting regulations on houses so that they'll build smaller apartments in Dublin, which doesn't seem like a good idea because the idea of building smaller apartments means, okay, so that's less family-friendly apartments. Um, 
which sort of goes back to the same idea that if you have a family and you've got, you know, 2.5 kids and a, and a dog and a cat and a car, that you got to live way out in the suburbs, yes. which is the problem why we have Dublin is now in five counties. Yeah. That mentality has led us to this enormous urban sprawl. Yeah. And we need to actually push back and sort of say we'll build up and not out. And if we were going to do rent certainty, it seems to me that we should have prioritized building high rises, not flats like the way that we've done it before, which is really badly built social housing for poor people who were taken out of the tenements in the 50s and fired into these kind of really badly built buildings. I mean, I'm actually talking like, you know, high quality apartments. And like, there's a bit of that happening in the Docklands, but there's no real incentive to do it across the country. Yeah. Um, my biggest worry with the rent certainty is not that they did it. I, I actually don't think it's constitutional. You're, you're worried that it won't get passed... Well, it's going to be challenged. Yeah. The landlord's group, I don't know what it's called, but they have like a, a lobby group. They basically came out and said, we're going to challenge this in the courts. And Ireland is unusual in that in our constitution, there's a kind of a, I suppose what you call it, a Michael David amendment, which is Michael David, for the listener, if you don't know, is one of, was one of the founders of the Land League, which happened in the 19th century. And as a result of the Land League and the Land Commission and the issue of property rights and ownership in this country, the Constitution basically says that the property rights of individuals is um, sanctified and can't really be disrupted in any major way by regulation or government intervention. And this is the policy that led to upward-only rent reviews. Because even though that... There might be a, a property of a collective or a business, or they fundamentally remain the property of the person who, whose name is on the deeds. Exactly. Okay. And so the worry would be that rent certainty, in the way that they've done it, could be argued to be an undue burden on an individual. So let's say you are a person living in Fingless, and you own three houses. You live in one, you rent the other two. And you can make the argument, well, I have a combined mortgage between the three of them of a million euros. That's easy to, to get to that math. Yeah. And so that individual is renting out the other two properties at a fixed price to make sure that he is covering his mortgage payments and is taking a bit off the top for himself. Um, rent certainty could be argued from that person's perspective is that it's going to place a disproportionate effect on him in that he's not going to be able to cover his three mortgages. Now, there's a logical part of you that goes, why the hell does he have three mortgages? You know, I mean, yeah. there's the point of you goes, well, look, you ended up in that situation. If you become bankrupt because you own three houses, that's not really the state's problem. But because of the Constitution, the way it's written, you know, he, that individual or individuals like that have a case. Mm -hmm. Because why they can't pay it off is resulting from government legislation, which is interfering with their personal property rights. Exactly. So we don't know if it's going to survive challenge. And, and it's a political question. If it does not survive challenge, and if the challenge comes before the general election, which will happen in the next six months, then that will prompt another political crisis about the issue of renting, property, who lives where, how do, affordability of housing, you know, the issue that you were talking about, which is Dublin is sucking so many people into it because that's where the jobs are, but yet people can't afford to live here. So now the rent in Kildare is more expensive than parts of Dublin because people are commuting. And it's also to do with the fact that the people who were originally... Whether they're born and bred in Dublin or not, they've just been here for a very long time. They also have the problem of if they're not in a quite a high-paying position, they're 
going to be forced out of their property eventually if the rents continue to rise. Yeah, and the, and the thing is, what is the long-term solution from the government? Because even rent certainty is a short-term fix. It's only two years. It buys you two years. And the implication of rent certainty is that somehow the rents that we're paying right now are normal mm-hmm. or equitable. When they're not. Yeah, they are disproportionately high. They're disproportionately high. They're disproportionately high because wages are disproportionately low. So unless unless the whole country gets a raise, none of this is going to make any sense. And it's all very well for, you know, politicians and civil servants who are A, in permanent jobs, not the politicians, but civil servants, and B, get paid very well. Yeah. You know, they're, they're earning over 50, 60 a year. And, you know, if they're married, that's another 50, 60 a year. They're both, you know, two civil servants earn a good wage. This is always the story that Enda uses, you know, the, the guard and the nurse, or what they used to call them, the coppers couple, right? Yeah. The cop and the nurse, they both earn about 50 grand. They bring home a combined wage of about 100. Now, I don't know anyone who brings home 100 grand a year. I don't know those families. I have no idea who, who he's talking about. Yeah. But obviously, there's a constituent that Enda knows, or that's a constituency that he's tapping into. But if that's the focus of the senior party in government, then that means that they're sort of leaving aside a whole other sector of the country that has no idea of what that lifestyle is like or what that means. And so from a political perspective, if rent certainty goes out the window because of a constitutional challenge and with the homeless crisis going to get worse, there's, there's no two ways around it, that is going to get worse. They've put a band-aid solution on it, we're coming into winter, the health service is in a, is in a mess, people are going to get fired out of hospitals, we're going to have more homeless people on the streets, there will be more people who will die, or at least one more, due to the cold. And I don't mean to be grim about it, but no. this is just, this is what's coming down the tracks. If you were looking at the budget as a kind of response of government to immediate issues, I don't think it was successful at all. But just to sort of to turn the debate, or the discussion a little bit, is do you think that any of their plans that they've released looking more long term have sought to amend any of the structural issues now from my perspective the main structural issues that are coming are obviously there's the the pension problem there's healthcare. yeah with a constantly expanding budget which is you know it's essentially you know it's it's a ship that's sinking and they're using a bucket to get the water out it's not yeah. sustainable in any shape it's or about form. 15 billion a year yeah on healthcare. Uh, and, it, and the outcomes are terrible. So, yeah, you're right. There is no long-term strategy. No. Not that I can see. The long-term infrastructure tra- strategy was a punt. They actually didn't do anything. They talked about, we have a plan to do a plan to do a plan. There's actually no spending been set aside, with the exception of the Cross City, which was funded four years ago. So that actually is separate to the infrastructure package, even though they said that it was all part of the one package. Yeah. You have to look where the money comes from. There's been no money appropriated for infrastructure, the large-scale infrastructure they're talking about. So if there's no money appropriated, it's just talk. In terms of healthcare, there was the universal health insurance idea. This is the model that James Riley ran on in the last election. It was, I think, 0.5 in the famous five-point plan to give yeah. us universal healthcare, and that basically collapsed on Tuesday. Yeah. And I think those of us who looked into the plan knew that it wasn't going to work because there was no costings, we had no idea how that was going to make sense. Um, and, you know, we're not the same as the United States, but let me tell you, if you try to force people to buy healthcare with a tax or a mandate, you're going to have a reaction. We just had a, a huge countrywide reaction to paying water taxes. What do you think that's going to happen when you're paying, you know, what, 1100 a year for health insurance? People are not going to react well to that. No. That's not palatable. 
even if it is logical or it makes sense fiscally, nobody wants to pay it. And your subsidies would be so high, how would it be affordable? Because you're going to have to subsidize, what, 40% of the country? And that 40% of the country is like children and old people. Because um, we, have, we have a huge baby boom. We, this is the other thing. We've got a baby boom. We've got schools that are not big enough. We've got a secondary school system that's a mess because they just changed the entirety of the junior cert, which all the teachers don't want to do. The leaving cert's a, in a serious problem because of the lack of take-up of certain courses. Not that the actual coursework is a problem, but it's the fact that the defunding of certain subjects, that's going to bite us in a couple of years. So it's like the government had to govern by crisis for five years, and now their whole, their whole pitch is, look, we got you through the crisis. Re-elect us because, you know, we know what we're doing. Well, you don't. Because this was the budget that was supposed to tell us, you know, what was the plan. Yeah. You know, after, when we started out this podcast, one of the things I said was, what's the vision thing? And now here we are, six months later, there's no vision thing. No, I, I think from even glancing at the, um, both the budget and the, the actual infrastructural plan that was released, the, the amount that was given for, they put as the modernization of the healthcare system. Yeah, I love that. I didn't, like I understand that there, there are definitely things within the healthcare system that need to be modernized in terms of digitization of records. Mm-hmm. Um, and more like certain programs, like introducing, like they had even in the. Well, so it was to remove the duplication yeah. of programs. I mean, that's the big, biggest problem with the HSC is not the fact that there is a HSC; it's the way it was created. And Michal Martin is the person who is responsible for this. He was the minister at the time. Michal Martin created the HSC by amalgamating the old health boards. Yeah. And what he did when he amalgamated was instead of doing what made logical sense, which is to rationalize the staff. He just took all of those systems and amalgamated them under one banner, renamed the HSE. That led to a duplication of administration, a duplication of bureaucracy that has resulted in a sort of a middle part of the health service that is literally all pencil pushers mm-hmm. who get paid very well, who are using paper records at a time when your average user is using at minimum a computer and at best a smartphone. So the technological difference between walking into an average hospital and walking into an average home is staggering. Like when we were young, hospitals were the place of modernity and technology and it was the new MRI machine. There is more modern technology in my house than there is in the matter in terms of age, in terms of usefulness, in terms of connectivity. Yeah. That's not right. It is. It's obviously there are certain things that would require huge amounts of initial capital. Like if you were to try to digitize all the current medical records. Yeah, it would cost money. Yeah. But it wouldn't cost as much money as people think. No. Like we're not talking billions, we're talking millions. And I know people kind of still think, I think there is a thinking when people talk about budgets, they go, well, millions, that's a lot of money. Bear in mind, our budget's about 50 billion. Mm-hmm. We can afford a few million for digitization. I mean, one of the things I did notice in the budget was they kind of fired money at odd things that I was sort of wondering why they did that. Like they fired, like, was it 11 million to sort of do up the National Gallery and the National Library? Mm-hmm. Well, that's fine. But they actually need a lot more long term investment. Yeah. So just giving them a little bit of short term money to get them through 1916, that's not going to help anything. Because the minute 1916 is over, they're going to still need money to function. Do you think part of this problem might be that 
um, as we've discussed, that there really is kind of a gap between what's kind of required for the country in terms of forward planning and investment and trying to use the small amounts of growth that we do have to make it last longer, and not in terms of just so people feel it in their pockets, as it were, but in terms of we feel like we're actually no longer just in sort of a crisis mode of managing debt, even though we still have a huge amount of deficit issues and the pension issue to do with... Coming down the track. Coming down the track. But the thing is, because the government doesn't have a mandate for that sort of forward thinking yet, mm-hmm. there is no actual impetus for them to provide that. True. Oh, thinking. yeah, no, that's true. I mean, we, we have the government that we put in. Yeah. We can give out about it all we want, and we should end on this. Like, we have the government we put in. You know, 30% of the country agree with Fine Gael. That's just how it is. And so that means about 30% of the country are relatively in line with what they've been doing. And so they'll probably get that same support on come election day. Now the question is, Fine Gael and to a lesser extent Labour have sort of kept the show on the road and everything is short term. It's short term orientated. And you're right, they don't have a mandate to do anything huge. Now Fine Gael will probably go out and look for a mandate to do more right wing things because they're the right wing party. Yeah. No, they have one party that's further to the right, that's Renua. But Renua are an issues party, right? They're a stalking horse. Mm-hmm. They're a stalking horse to be a potential coalition partner to pull that party so far right. That's what yeah. that's about. That's not, a, that's not a real party in any normal way. It's designed to pull the party to the right on social issues. That's what it's there to do. Yeah. Um, so if Fine Gael get a mandate, fine. But the thing is, we're about to go into an election where the three largest party as largest parties, which are Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, and Sinn Féin, are all on roughly even levels of support. And since they've all ruled out coalitions with each other, we're still in the same situation where if an election was today, no one could govern. So then we'd have to have a second election. And then it's almost like the first mandate didn't work, and then the second election is supposed to give us a mandate to bring us somewhere, which we don't even know. So, I mean, if the budget was supposed to lay out the framework for how the next election was supposed to work, which is what they kept telling us it was going to do, then it's been a failure. All it has shown is that successive short-term thinking has brought us to a stage where we have almost returned to the 1980s. We could have three general elections in an 18-month span, which is, you know, from a government perspective, a pretty lousy outcome. I think one of the concluding things that I would say about the general sort of reaction to the budget and where I think Ireland's going at least immediately after this, in the lead-up to the um, uh, forthcoming general election, is how well can they control the shortcomings that w- of all their announcements to date. Yeah. Um, They're almost pe- going to get bitten by their own press conferences. Well, even even the, um, the gay marriage referendum has started to get a little bit of sort of reflection as being opportunistic rather than the general positive feel that a lot of people had immediately afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so I think, unfortunately, for their lack of foresight in terms of certain issues, especially the budget, will come around as certain things start to unravel. And whether that's a core challenge of rent security or uh, another injection into the healthcare budget or... Ultimately, the fact that people will not be feeling any relief from the announcement, as you said, until February. Yeah, that's when the tax cuts will basically kick in. And the receipts for that don't actually come through. We don't actually know the results of that until... Yeah, until at least May. We won't actually know how well that worked. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, it's been basically a wasted effort. 
but also from you know, and this is the end because we're it's our generation. There's been nothing for us. There's nothing in that budget that makes someone under thirty want to vote for Fine Gael or Labour. There's nothing I can see that makes them want to vote for them. Unless they already have a bit of security themselves. But the people with you who are still them. rising and, and feel that there's been some sort of yeah. glass ceiling yeah. will but not there's, feel. there's a lot of people who weren't 18 in 2011 who are 18 coming up for next year. Mm-hmm. And if they're registered to vote, we know how they're going to vote. They're going to vote against the parties of government. The question is who they vote for. And that, of course, is a subject for another podcast. And this has been me, Jack Cavanaugh. And me, Ben Simmons. Thank you very much for listening. You can follow us at spoilyourreign at gmail.com. Thank you very much and goodbye.